Good morning again. As Will so eloquently put it this morning, you are stuck with me again. I wanted to say, have you ever read about Moses and how he was stuck with a group of people? But I refrained. So I am glad to be here and glad for this opportunity this morning. The 830 service were guinea pigs. Um, It worked well for them. So if it doesn't work right in this service, it's your fault. But uh, I'm playing with some new technology, but with part of the new video system that we have, I I have the ability to control my slides. That one works. We're off to a good start. I have the ability to control my slides from up here. And normally we just let the guys up there do it. But as I was putting this PowerPoint together, um, there were just some cues and some transitions that needed to be made that I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to tell them to transition without saying, okay, next slide. And we really didn't want to do that. So uh, we're praying that technology works today and that everything goes as planned. But it's apropos that we're praying things go as planned, because today we are actually on our next step in spiritual formation as we talk about prayer. It's our battle cry. And as I was thinking about that title this morning, and thinking about this idea of a battle cry, you know, obviously it comes out of this idea that we are at war. We, we are engaged in spiritual warfare whether we want to be, whether we realize that we are or not. When we sign up to become a Christian, when we lay down our lives and take his on, we are in war. Think about that. The enemy was at war against him. And if it's no longer us who lives, but he that lives through us, why wouldn't we be right in the midst of that war? And as we're working, as we're talking about developing our relationship and our walk with him, as we're looking at these next steps and we're working on our personal spiritual formation, the enemy is actively and aggressively warring against us because he does not want to see that happen. He does not want to see us grow. He does not want us to be effective. He does not want us actively engaging in the warfare. Instead, he wants us on the sideline watching everything happen. Or he wants us in the trenches, cowered down and not doing anything, just knowing that the war will be won in the end. And if we just wait it out in a foxhole somewhere, we'll eventually get there. But that is not at all what Christ has called us to. Not at all what he has called us to. So as we think about this idea that we're engaged in warfare, that the enemy is actively and aggressively pursuing us and our spiritual walk, and we need to be thinking about how we're waging war. And we need to be thinking about this idea of prayer on the battlefield. Prayer on the battlefield. And this is not the desperate plea of a soldier who is in the trenches begging God just to bring him home to his wife or his kids. This is something more than that. We're talking about prayer being used on the battlefield. Prayer being a tool that we use as we go into war and as we know we're there on the front lines. What comparison can we make? Many times as we hear pastors talk about putting on the full armor of God and we hear about the different pieces of our spiritual armor, we're often told that the word of God is what? Audience participation time. The word of God is what? A sword. You are going to have to do better. I had three hours of sleep last night and I'm more awake than you are. So you have got to do better. Keep me awake. It's a sword. And many times pastors will say it's the only offensive weapon that we've been given. So what does that make prayer? What does that make prayer? Well, one of the things that you, you hear, and I've heard this before and I've used this illustration before, is that it's our radio. It's our comm system while we're on the battlefield. 
And soldiers will tell you that while they're on the battlefield, one of the most important tools they have at their disposal is the radio. Think about all the different ways in which it's used. If they need to know directions, if they need to know where they're headed next, if they need to know what the next objective is or what the next target is, those directions come in, those battle plans come in over the radio. Or maybe they're already out there and they're already advancing toward their next objective. But they get in some terrain and they get in some surrounding and it just does not seem like their directions were right. Surely these coordinates were not the coordinates that they were given. Something must be wrong. And so this radio is used to go back and get clarification and assurance. God, is this really where you were sending me? Is this really the person you wanted me to talk to? Is this really where I'm supposed to be right now in this time of my life? I'm not saying I don't want to be here and I'm not saying I won't do it. But before I do anything else, it just seems like something isn't right. Are you sure this is it? Am I in the right spot? So we get that clarification and that assurance. Or it could be a call for resources. We're there in the midst of the fray. And we're short on something. We're short on patience. We're short on compassion. We're short on self-control. We're short on that scripture that we need at this moment. We know there is one there if we could just think of what it was. So we call for resources. God, this is what I need. God, this is where I am. This is what's going on. God, this is what would really help right now. God, if you want me to do this, if you want me to accomplish this task or this objective, here's what I'm going to need to do that. And he wants us to go to him for that. He wants us to call on him for those things. In fact, he's never sent us on a mission. He's never given us a task to accomplish where he has not completely outfitted and equipped us and made the resources available. He says, ask, and he'll open up the storehouses of heaven. But we have to make that call for those resources. Sometimes it's a call for backup. We're out there on the field. We find ourselves on the front line. We find ourselves engaging the enemy. We find ourselves doing the ministry that God has tasked us with. But it seems like we're out there all alone. And this is a task that we cannot accomplish on our own. This is a task that it's going to take more than just us. And so we call on God and we ask him to send backup. We ask him to send a friend. We ask him to send co-laborers. We ask him to send something, someone to come alongside us here at this spot and accomplish this objective. And we find Jesus instructing his disciples to do that in scripture, do we not? As he looked at the field and saw that they were plentiful and they were ripe for harvest, what did he tell them to do? He said, pray that God would send forth laborers. Now, certainly they were included in that, but notice what he told them to pray for. Pray for more laborers. God wants us to make that backup call. As we're going day to day, as we get into situations and we see ministry opportunities, God wants us to involve our brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants us to pull. We don't always have the skills and the gift set that are needed. Maybe we're an encourager, but we need a teacher to come alongside us. We, we need that evangelist to come alongside us in this situation. We befriended these people. We're encouraging them. We're, we're helping motivate them. We're trying to see them move on and grow in their Christian walk. But we don't have all of the skills that we need. And we, we need to pull along some backup to come in and help us finish the job. Or maybe we get into that situation and the situation is so dire. The situation is so hard. That there's no amount of human help and no amount of co-laborers that's going to see this thing through. And we make that call for air support. We make that call for air support. We wait to hear the big one come over and to see him drop that bomb right there on that enemy stronghold. Take down their defenses so that we can go in and do what he's tasked us to do. 
And you know, God will allow us to get into those points. He will send us on the mission. He will send us right up to the walls of the fortress, only to realize that there is no way that we ourselves can go through, that we can advance and do anything else, because we are solely dependent on him, and of ourselves we are completely incapable. And we have to call for him to come in and do what we can't accomplish on our own so that we can take that next step that he's called us to. He absolutely will let us get to that place because it keeps us humble and keeps us dependent on him. What did Paul say? It's in those moments when he found that in his weakness he was strong because he was dependent on God. Or maybe we find ourselves in the midst of the battle and we're wounded and we're hurting. It's that call for a medic. Whether it's for us or whether it's for a fellow soldier who is there on the front lines. They're facing something where they're wounded. Maybe it's by enemy fire. Maybe it's by friendly fire. But they're wounded. They're hurt. They're grieving. They can't go on. They can't accomplish the task that God has called them to. You can't imagine how you could possibly minister to these people when you are hurting so bad yourself. And you call for that medic to come and to give you that peace and that comfort and that balm that only he can provide, to provide that healing that only he can bring into the situation. This last one looks really out of place. You know what else that radio can be used for? To voice your complaints and your frustrations. You say, yeah, but that's the example of how you can use it negatively, right? No. Have you ever sat down and read the book of Psalms? I know you're thinking that's a song book, not a prayer book. But really, what are songs? What are, what are a lot of the psalms? They're a heart cry by David as he's writing to God. Whether he's giving his praise or whether he's praying one of these imprecatory psalms. You know, the ones that your friends, your unsafe friends love to go to and the internet trolls love to go to and quote and say, if God's a loving God and if David was a man of God and a man after God's own heart, what about this one when he wrote this, asking God to smite these people and strike them down? You know, the ones that we sometimes wish weren't in there. The ones that we struggle to understand. But have you ever really read those things all the way through? David is picking up the radio in the midst of the battle whenever it looks like everything is dire, whenever it looks like everything has blown up in his face, and he's calling into headquarters and he's saying, God, this is the situation. The enemy is winning and they're advancing. And I do not understand it. I do not understand why. I don't understand what's wrong in my life. I don't understand what I've done that I'm not seeing victory. But God, I pray that you would come in and strike them down. That you would defeat the enemy. That you would utterly rout them. Wipe them from the face of the earth. Get them completely off the battlefield. But then what does he do at the end of every one of those? They always evolve into praise. Somehow in the midst of his complaints and his frustrations back to headquarters, David always remembers who's on the other end of the radio. And he always remembers that God has always come through. He always remembers that God has always delivered him before. He always remembers that God is capable of bringing that deliverance that he's looking for. And every one of those ends up being praise back to God for his power, his majesty, his faithfulness, and it brings God glory. You see, there is nothing wrong when we go to our knees in prayer and in our frustration, in our limited understanding, in our hurt. We voice all of that to God 
as long as we stop and listen to his response, as he reminds us about this situation that he delivered us from, this blessing that's in our life that we didn't deserve, this time that he showed his power in a situation for this person, or maybe even in our own lives previously, and we end that call with a God, you know what, you're right. You've done that before. You're capable. Why was I even worried? You will have the victory. See, there's nothing wrong with those prayers. And there is nothing wrong with using prayer as a radio on the battlefield. But the question is, is that all that prayer is? Is that all that prayer is? Is that all that prayer can be? If that's all that prayer is, we're missing something. If that's all that prayer is for us, we are missing something incredible in our spiritual walk, in our spiritual lives. We're missing Captain America. No, I'm not going to try to make this a Captain America analogy for prayer. The shield is not symbolic. I'm not going to break down the red, white, and blue and the stars and the stripes. But I do want you to think, whether you're a big comic book fan, whether you're an Avengers movie fan, I want you to think back to Captain America in his beginnings. The Captain America comics were propaganda, right? They're, they're meant, this whole idea, this understanding of Captain America is meant to pull at our nation's heartstrings, to rally us against the common enemy, to think about all that we fought for and all that we stood for and how right would prevail. Here's this little scrawny guy who had a big heart. But because he was tiny, he couldn't do anything until he's given this gift and he becomes Captain America. And now he's as big as his heart is and there's nothing that can stand in his way. But there's something that always happened and was always true in the Captain America comics, regardless of what time period you were reading them. He was always fighting Nazis, right? But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. In every Captain America storyline, there's always an enemy who's always looking for something that's going to bring them the ultimate power. They were always looking for like the Holy Grail or the spear that pierced Christ's side or some mythical piece of, you know, lure, this relic somewhere that wasn't just a relic. In that relic was power and that power was going to alter the course of the world. It was going to change and turn the tides of the war so that the Nazis could win because it was a source of unlimited power. Or it was a source to bend reality and change reality at their will. It was always something like that. But they were always looking for this source of power. It's kind of like that with us on the battlefield in prayer. Except instead of the enemy looking for a source of power, the enemy knows the source of power. The enemy knows that if we could tap into this power that's available to us, It would change the course of the war. That if we would tap into this power that was available to us, it is an unlimited supply with which we could wage our war and he would not stand a chance. Don't get me wrong. God has already won the final victory. Satan is trying to collect as many battles as he can. And sometimes it seems that we as the church set back and say, God, we get the ultimate victory, so we'll let Satan have every battle he wants. We don't tap into this power that's available and we don't wage the war that God is wanting us to wage. 
We don't try to win these battles. And we let the enemy keep us from this power that he knows is there. So this morning, let's look at this power of prayer. What is it that is so powerful, that is so important, that is so life-altering that the enemy is trying everything that he can to keep us from it? This evening in our small groups, when you come back at 5.30, we're going to talk about some of the ways that the enemy keeps us from prayer and tries to keep us from tapping into this power of prayer. But if it was not so powerful, why would the enemy try so hard to keep us from it? How powerful is this thing that we could tap into? Well, let's look at it. It's earth-shaking. It is earth-shaking. When we get into Acts chapter 4, The disciples, two of them, had been imprisoned. God has miraculously allowed them to get out. And it says when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, notice this, what are they doing? They're praying, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And it goes on for several verses and gives us the whole dialogue of this prayer. But notice how it concludes. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. But see, the only shaking that went on was not here in this verse. The place where they were gathered was shaken. But notice what happened. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and emboldened to go out and speak the truth boldly. That meant their families were shaken. Their workplaces were shaken. Their neighborhoods were shaken. Their church was shaken. As they went out and they proclaimed the word of God, it was life-altering. But it started When they got on their knees together in unified, earnest prayer, their lives were altered. The place was shaken. And when they went out and went out into the world, they shook the world around them as they spoke with boldness. This was just the beginning of the shaking. This was the epicenter. But as you go on in the book of Acts now, chapter after chapter after chapter, you see the waves as they spread out from this prayer meeting. And the way that God altered the course of human history. It's earth shaking. And the enemy doesn't want us to have any part of it. But we don't tap in to that power. It's productive. It's productive. It is like some kind of super factory in this war that we wage. The possibility and the power of prayer for production is unlimited. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Notice he didn't say the super busy, overscheduled calendar of a righteous man can accomplish much. He didn't say all the good intentions in the world of a righteous man accomplish much. He didn't say the incredibly large offering check of the righteous man accomplishes much. What did he say? The effective prayer. The effective prayer. We see prayer not as an action, 
but it's something passive that we do in between the actions. I'm getting ready to go on a mission trip and I want to go and I want to do this in this village and this in this village and do this with this people group and teach this and work here and do this. So along with getting my plane tickets and packing my bags, I'm praying along the way, right, to prepare their hearts, to prepare my hearts, to prepare the harvest field. And none of those things are wrong, but we stop there. Our opinion and our view of what prayer is is so limited. Prayer ranks right there with buying plane tickets and packing our bags. Prayer is going to help get us there. Prayer is going to help us do what we're going to do while we're there. But notice what we fail to ever realize. Prayer is doing. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is productive. Prayer is also demon conquering. In one instance, Jesus goes up on the mountain with a few select disciples. And while they're up there... The people of the villages around bring some of their sick and their lame and their demon-possessed. These people in great needs to the disciples. One in particular is possessed. And a debate arises, an argument among the townspeople and some of the other religious leaders and the disciples there because the disciples can't do anything about this one. So the power of Christ and the power of Christ in them is actually being questioned. And about that time, as they're arguing, Jesus and the other disciples come down from the mountain. So Jesus does what they cannot do, and he casts this demon out. And it says, when they came into the house, this is after the event, his disciples begin to question him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Why does the enemy try so hard to keep us from prayer? Because he knows the power that's in it. The power to cast out even demons. And understand, this is one who could come out by nothing but prayer. Folks, we are going to encounter things in our lives. We are going to encounter things in our warfare that we can't do anything else about but pray. No amount of teaching, No amount of giving, no amount of serving, no amount of stacking chairs is going to do anything about the situation. It's prayer. It's prayer. And yet, just like we said a moment ago, we see prayer as something that's preparatory. We don't see it as something active that we can do. We don't see prayer as a weapon in our warfare. We have bought into the idea that is never given to us in Scripture that this is the only offensive weapon that we have. Yes, it is called a sword. But please show me where it ever says this is the only offensive weapon we have in our warfare. Prayer is powerful, prayer is productive, prayer is demon-conquering, and there are some things that we will encounter in this warfare that we can't do anything about but pray. It's an incredibly powerful resource that we do not take advantage of. Prayer is anxiety-ending. Prayer is anxiety-ending. Think about one of the biggest plagues, one of the biggest obstacles, one of the biggest enemies that we face in our culture today. It's the thing that will tear apart families. It will tear apart your life personally. It will tear apart your health. 
It will destroy your career, and it will certainly kill your ministry. Stress and anxiety. Sit down and watch an evening of television. How many pharmaceutical commercials do you watch for depression and anxiety and all of the things that come along with it? Prayer is the answer. Do not be anxious about anything. Notice it doesn't say, don't let a single thought come into your head about something that's going on and how you're going to proceed. But he says, when those thoughts come into your mind, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, because we know that God is capable and we know that God will answer, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, it starts there with prayer. It starts there with prayer. When I face a situation and I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know what the outcome is going to be, I don't see how I can exert my control over it, I don't see how I can change it, I don't see how it's going to work out in my favor, I don't see how I... See, there's the problem. Instead, I take it and place it at the feet of Jesus and say, I don't understand it. And I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. I don't understand if I can even do anything. But you have the answer. You have the power. You can handle it. And if I'm supposed to be part of the solution, you'll tell me what my part is. If I'm supposed to let someone else be the solution, as hard as it is for me not to be in control, as hard as it is for me to take help, as hard as it is for me to say that I can't do it, I'm going to let them be the solution because you know better. Do you see how calming that is? When I can say, God, I have no idea how it's going to work out, but I am trusting your plan. And I know you're going to work for your glory. And that's really what I want is your glory. So I'm not going to worry about me in this. What are you going to do for your glory? Because I can't figure it out. Now it's on him, not on you. You aren't carrying it around. How much more effective would we be in our ministries? How much more effective would we be in our lives? How much more joy, how much more opportunities would we take advantage of if we weren't carrying around the weight of the world on our shoulders worrying about how we are going to deal with it? We kill ourselves literally with stress. And he says, give it to me. And don't be anxious for anything. Let my peace, which passes all understanding, guard your heart. Instead, stress will choke out our heart. Amen? See, we can say all of this because the power of prayer is the power of God. The power of prayer is the power of God. That's why prayer is so powerful. Because the power of prayer is the very power of God. Ian Bounds says prayer can accomplish anything God can accomplish. 
prayer is able to do anything God is able to do. Why? Because when we take our situation and we go to God in prayer and give it to Him, who's working on it now? You see, it's His power. It's His power. I know this is going to sound absolutely ridiculous and you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think of it like opening a portal. I know, you and your movie. But it's like opening a portal. Think about it. Except it's not exactly the direction you think. See, opening this portal with the power of prayer is not saying, okay, here's the situation that I'm in, and I'm going to open this portal up and bring God into my situation. No, it's just the opposite. It says, here is the situation that I am in, and I'm going to open this portal with the power of prayer and take my situation and my circumstances to the throne room of God and lay them at his feet. Because he's the only one who can do anything about it. I'm going to take all of this stuff that I'm concerned about and I'm going to bring it to Jesus and give it to him. That's the power of prayer. And that's not as ridiculous an idea as you think it is that I had. Because we find this very thing in the New Testament. There's a man who's bedfast. No doctors, no friends, no magicians, no anyone can do anything about it for him. And his friends hear that Jesus is in town. So for them to get together, and they each take a corner of the bed, and they go to the house where they've been told that Jesus is, but the crowd is so heavy that they can't get through the door. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof and start pulling it apart and making a hole, a portal, if you will. And what do they do? They lower their friend through the portal to the feet of Jesus. Because he's the only one who's able to do what no one else could do. That's the power of prayer. When I find myself in any situation in life, no matter what it is, no matter what decision I'm facing, no matter what task God has given me to do, I open up this portal and take it to the feet of Jesus. Because even if I think I can do something about it, he can do it right. Even if I think I can do it 80%, he can do it 120. He's God. He can do that, right? It's this portal. That is the power of prayer. The power of prayer is the power of God working in that situation. So when we don't pray, guess what? We miss the power. We miss the power. I was at Jim Stevens' house yesterday, climbing up on a ladder, helping him. Uh, He's repainting the shutters and putting them back up on the house. And so he can't go up the ladder. And so I went up to take these things down. And he set me up big time too. I got over there and he's got all the tools that he had been using on the ones on the bottom, he said, were there. So there's the ladder and there's a couple screwdrivers. So I grabbed the screwdrivers and put them in my pocket and go up the ladder and start on the first. Each shutter's got six screws. So I start with my screwdriver on the first one while I'm up here on this ladder. And he's not using screws, he's using screws. So I'm turning and turning and turning and turning. He lets me get the entire first shutter down. He said, you think a drill would help? You have one? Now it wasn't a nice cordless drill. 
It was a corded one. So imagine if I took this thing up the ladder, put the bit in the screw, and then just started turning the drill over, right? Stupid. It's got a cord on it. What's that cord got to be plugged into? The power. The power. The power was available, but if I didn't tap into it, did it do me any good at all? When we don't tap into this power that God has made available to us, when we don't pray, we miss it. We miss it. So I want to go on in James chapter 5. We, we talked about the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, availing much. He goes on and he, he gives us the example of a master of prayer, if you will. Someone who knew this weapon and knew this tool and knew how to employ it and knew how to use it on the battlefield. And we're going to look at it and we're going to get some pointers. We're going to see just how effective it can be. Who are we talking about? Elijah. Look in chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. It says, he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Would you call that power in prayer? Would you say that if somebody prayed and asked God to stop the rain until they said, go again, and God stopped the rain until they said, go again, would you say that they had found the power in prayer? I mean, this is the same guy who also prayed fire down from heaven. Would you say he's a master of prayer? Well, if you go on and continue reading in this passage, it tells us a couple of things about Elijah. One, he says, Elijah, who had a nature like unto our own. Elijah had a nature just like ours. He was just a regular person like me and you. He wasn't a teenage kid who got bit by a radioactive camel or something like that at one point in his life. He didn't gain any superpowers. He didn't drink tea made from a burning bush and suddenly he could pray in tongues and call you know, elemental forces out. He was a person like us. Just like us. A person who put his faith in God and prayed for big things. But he was a person like us. He was also a person very much like us who lived in ungodly times. You say, well, in Bible days or back then, no. Have you ever looked at the situation, thought about the situation in which Elijah found himself? There was a king on the throne who was so ungodly, not only was he practicing idol worship and married to an idolatrous herself, but he was having God's prophets systematically killed. Ungodly times. Times much like the world in which we live today, where when we speak out for Christ, when we speak the truth of the Bible, we at the very least face ridicule, if not outright persecution. Elijah lived in ungodly times. Elijah lived in times whenever God wasn't moving and active in the midst of the people. And blessing them and doing signs and wonders. 
But he lived in a time when people wanted nothing to do with God. They had forgotten about God. They had turned their back on God. They had turned their back on the law. And yet, his prayer affected a nation. Many times we give up on prayer. We've prayed for our leaders. We've prayed for our nations. We've prayed for our school. We've prayed for our community. We've prayed for our world. And look at the state that it's in. Nothing's going to happen. God's given up on us. And nothing's going to happen. But Elijah prayed in ungodly times. A person just like us. And his prayer affected a nation. We need to take heart and take encouragement in that. But he prayed boldly. He prayed boldly. Where did that boldness come from? This is one of the things that we need to pick up in our lives. Where did this boldness in prayer, this assurity in the power of prayer come from? Well, he knew God and he knew his word. He knew God and he knew his word. Before Elijah walked in before the king, And said, at my word, it's not going to rain another drop. I mean, imagine doing that. A king who's having the prophets of God systematically killed, and this prophet of God walks in and doesn't say, God sent me with a message and said there's going to be a drought. No, he walks into the king's throne room and says, at my word, it's going to stop raining until I tell it to rain again. How did Elijah get that kind of boldness? You go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and at least two times there we find it. You go to the book of Chronicles, and and you look at Solomon's dedication of the temple and God's response to him. We find it there. God says, when Israel turns its back on me and forsakes my law and doesn't seek me and plays the harlot and goes after idols, I'm going to cut off the rain. There's going to be famine in the land. Until the people are desperate enough that they realize the error of their way. And what does he say? Then, if my people who are called by my name, right? We remember that part of the passage, don't we? But notice what he says. He says, if they'll humble themselves, right? Repent and turn from their wicked ways. And what's he going to do? He says, then will I hear from heaven and what? Heal their land. He was speaking very literally to the Israelites at that point because what had he just told them he was going to do when they turned their back on him? Cut off the rain. Elijah knew this. And he's looking around at the children of Israel and he sees them living in the very condition that God said was right for this type of punishment. He sees that they turn their back on God. He sees that they're not following his law. He sees that they've forsaken him and they've turned to idols and they're prostituting themselves with false religions. And he says, God, you said if they got to this point, you would cut off the rain. And in James chapter 5, it says he prayed fervently that God would do this. See, he didn't just walk into the king's throne room on a whim one day and say it. He knew what God's intention was. He knew what God had declared. And he prayed fervently that God would make good on this promise because if Israel ever needed to be brought to its knees, if Israel ever needed to be at rock bottom, if Israel ever needed to see that they were completely and totally at the dependence of God, it was now. So praying that and knowing the heart of God and knowing what God had said and what God had already declared, Elijah walks in before the king and says, at my word, it's not going to rain another drop. 
See, a complete and total faith in a God who had made his declaration known. He had complete and total faith that he knew the heart of God in this situation. And he prays a big, bold prayer. And it wasn't because he felt wronged. It wasn't because he felt slighted. It wasn't because he wanted revenge. It's because he was jealous for God's glory and wanted God's people to turn back to him and give him the glory that he was due. So he prays this bold prayer. You see, he knew he couldn't do it himself. That's why he fervently prayed that God would do this. He knew that personally he was inadequate That he needed God. And so he prays earnestly, fervently. But I don't think we realize that sometimes when we pray. Our mindset is this. God, I am perfectly capable. You have gifted me. I'm educated. I've done this before. But this time it's not working, so you do it. Is that the fervent prayer of someone who realizes how inadequate they are? And how dependent on God they are? So let's look at another master of prayer real quickly this morning. You. You say, oh, I'm no master. Well, why not? You could be. You could be. This is what a master, this is what you, the master of prayer, would look like. You would have faith. You would have faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, God only hears prayers of faith. God only hears prayers of faith. Think about the sinner's prayer. What is that? It's the very first prayer of faith that someone will pray to start that relationship with Christ, right? But then as Christians, how do we walk? We walk by faith. We're to pray in faith. In case there's any question about that, he goes on and says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. God hears prayers of faith. God answers prayers of faith. God wants us to come to him knowing full well, not only is he capable, but he will, because this is for his glory. That's the kind of prayer that we need to pray, and we want to pray effective prayer. We also need to be surrendered or be renewed. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice. We're surrendered. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, as we sacrifice ourselves to God, as we come to him and say, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's not only I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And our mind is transformed to be like the mind of Christ. When we look at situations, when we look at the world around us, when we see the circumstances that we're in, we see them as Christ sees them, we see them as God sees them, we see them as how God can use this situation for his glory. And that's what we pray for. That's what our life becomes about. That's our heart's desire because that's his desire. And when we pray in faith believing that not only is he capable of doing it, but this is what's going to bring him glory and this is his desire, we're surrendered to that. He 
says he answers our prayer. But it has to be a prayer of faith from a surrendered heart that's been renewed to be like his. And then he says if we want him to answer prayer and to hear our prayer, we have to abide in his word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Sounds like a genie in a bottle. So he gives us a little clarification. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I wish for a new Lamborghini. Let it be. Well, you know what? If I was completely convinced that God was telling me he wanted me to have one for his glory... I'm not sure how that's worked yet. I'm still trying to find out. But if I was completely convinced that he wanted me to have that and that was going to bring him glory, then that's absolutely what I would pray for. In prayer, in faith, he says he would give it. But you see, we have to be careful with this second step that we're surrendered and our minds are renewed so that we're seeing life like he does and thinking like he does and we're thinking about his glory and how he's going to get that. Not only do we have to abide in the word, but like we talked about last week, we have to obey the word. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. You see, sin separates us from God. The Bible also says that our sin, because of it, it will close his ear to us and he will not hear And yet so many times we pray and we pray and we pray and we get frustrated because God's not doing what we're asking him to do. And we're certain that this would be something that he would want done. And it's God, I just don't understand. We we shut down the pornography site and go to our knees and pray for an hour for this thing to happen. And we just don't understand why our prayers aren't getting through. We're running around and we're mixed up in this crowd and now we're facing the consequences of our decisions and our actions and the things that we've been doing and we go to God and we pray that he's going to deliver us from these consequences and we just don't understand. We pray and we pray and we pray because we want this family member to be saved because God, they are rotten lousy, low life of a person and they've wronged me my entire life and I can't stand the thought of them and can't stand to be around them. But if you would just save them, then maybe I could forgive them for what they did and maybe I could... But what is unforgiveness? You see, he goes on to tell us that whenever we stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you. We can't go to God with a grudge and unforgiveness in our heart. We can't go to God with unconfessed sin in our heart. We can't go to God with things that separate us from him and expect to lay our needs and our burdens at his feet. We can't get into the throne room. The portal closes down. When there's unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin, when there's hatefulness and unforgiveness, when those things are in our heart, we can't go through the portal. We can't take our burdens. We can't take our concerns. We can't lay those things at Christ's feet. What does he say? He says, if you go to the altar to present your offering or your sacrifice there and you remember 
that there's strife between you and your brother, what are you supposed to do? You leave it there, you go and make it right, then you come back and make your offering. If we want to pray effective prayer, we have to not only be obedient to the word, but we have to make sure that we're confessing our sin and we're forgiving others. We can't harbor that in our heart. So you, master of prayer, need to make sure you're doing these things. Pray in faith, not only believing that God is capable, but believing that God will, because what you're praying for is his will for his glory. Be surrendered and be renewed in your mind so that you know what his will and his glory is about. Abide in his word so that you learn more and more of that and your heart is made more and more like his. Obey the word as you read them because our sin separates us from God. And forgive others so that it doesn't become a blockage in the flow. Remember this, prayer is battle. It's not just a weapon of our warfare. It's not just a tool to use on the battlefield. But prayer itself is a battle. Why? Because every prayer in faith and humility is a victory. Because it brings God glory. Every time I look at a situation in my life, a decision that I have to make, something that I can't understand, and I say, God, I can't do this. God, I need you to intervene. God, I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. God, I don't have the ability, but you do. That's giving God glory, and that's exactly what the enemy does not want us to do. It's exactly what the enemy does not want us to do. Because you see, God gives us this resource of prayer because it is powerful. And he wants us to take advantage of it. Because prayer is evangelistic. And I don't just mean praying for people that they'll come and that they'll be saved. I'm talking about as the people of God are living the way that God is calling us to live. And we're tapped into the power of prayer. And we're praying effective prayer in our lives. And others see that. They see the power of God working through the prayer in our lives. And they say there's something to that. There's something to that. There is power there, and it's evident. And that power comes from God. And that person's tapped in. There's something different about them. There's something different about their understanding of God, their relationship with God. Something I've never realized before, something I've never heard before, something I've never had before. And you see, they want to tap in. They want to tap in. Prayer is a battle. Effective prayer is the front line. If the enemy can keep us from praying effective prayer, not only does it make us harder for for us to accomplish our task, but it keeps God from getting the glory. What did Jesus say? When he's lifted up, he'd draw all men unto himself. Satan doesn't want Christ lifted up in our prayer life. He doesn't want to see us pray powerful, effective prayer. We've got to tap in to the power. Are you fighting with power? Are you tapped in to this incredible weapon of warfare? 
This incredible production plant. This incredible tool that God has given you while you're out there on the front lines. The power of prayer is the power of God. Why don't we use it? Why don't we use it? Like I said, as we talk in our small groups tonight, we're going to look at these hindrances to prayer and the reasons that we have for not tapping into it. God's calling us to do that. God's calling for this to be our next step. We need to be a praying people. We need to be a people of prayer. We need to be a people that understands the power that is available to us. And we need to use it. I can't speak for each and every one of us personally about how much we pray. I can't speak for each and every one of your Sunday school classes or your small groups about how much you pray. Because it's not always about how much. It's about the effectiveness of prayer. How are you praying? Are you praying in faith? Are you praying with a renewed mind? Are you praying free from sin and unforgiveness? Are you seeing God answer your prayer? Are we raising up a generation who thinks prayer is something we do at church because it's on the agenda? Because that's what Christians do. Because when we come to church together, the first thing that we do in any class, in any session, is we give God a list of all the sick people so that he knows. It's kind of like this morbid fascination that we have as we get older of reading the obituaries, right? Do you think God needs that every week as we get together? He needs to stay informed. We're reporting to him who's sick, who's traveling, who's got an ingrown toenail, who's... Is that the example and the legacy that we're leaving? Or are young people and our children seeing us burdened for things? And not just praying tear-filled, angst-ridden prayers. But are they seeing us living our lives in a way that says, you know what? Prayer is one of the most effective things that I can do. And if I want my prayers to be heard, I have to keep sin out of my life. Prayer is one of the most effective things that I can do. So I've got to be obedient to the sermon this Sunday. I've got to be obedient to what God had me read in my quiet time this morning. Prayer is one of the most effective things that I can do. So in order to stay effective, I've got to have a quiet time and stay in the word every day. Prayer is one of the most effective things that I can do. So as a priority before anything else, prayer takes its place. Other things in my schedule can get juggled around. Other things in my schedule are important. Other things in my schedule will have to be done. But prayer is the one thing that I cannot compromise on. Is that what they're seeing? Or is God our Father, once again, we bow our head and thank you. The most they see and hear us pray. Is God be with Aunt Shirley's ingrown toenail and her cat who's having a lot of hairballs? Amen. The extent of what they're hearing us pray. Guys, this isn't just a chat with our best friend. This, this isn't just something that we check off our list so that we can be the good Christian for the day. 
there is power in prayer. The very power of God. Do we take that too lightly? God, I pray this morning.